and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm your host, Roz Taylor. We hope you're listening to this in a sunny park or garden with five friends and a bottle of wine. But if you're on your way to the office, that's fine too. As Boris Johnson says, you've had enough days off now. (laughs) (laughs) Joining me this week is Nina Schick, commentator and author of Deep Fakes and the Infocalypse. Hi, Nina. Hi, Roz. Great to be here. Some people will have seen the TikTok of Tom Cruise doing magic recently, which is a deep fake. He wasn't doing that at all. Last year, you warned us about these in your book. You once needed quite sophisticated software to produce a deep fake, but now there are smartphone apps for that. Do you think a lot of people will have to be fooled by deep fakes before we start taking them seriously? No, well, I think we have to start taking them seriously immediately because the one of the consequences of deep fakes is even before they become ubiquitous and ubiquitous they will become um, so much so that some experts who I've interviewed for my book think by 2030, 90% of the audiovisual content online that we interact with on a daily basis is going to be synthetically generated. We're not there yet. But the effect that deepfakes are already having is that they corrode trust in all authentic media. And this is something known as the liar's dividend. And this is already something that's having a pretty profound political impact where real evidence of wrongdoing, particularly in parts of the world where there is already kind of a fragile consensus around human rights issues, are now being decried as deepfake. So it really corrodes at the very notion of reality. So we don't have to see it as a threat before synthetic media becomes ubiquitous. This is about, you know, keeping a lid on or or whether or not we can handle, (laughs) distinguish what's real or what's not anymore. So we should be worried, basically. Right. Absolutely. (laughs) Ian Dunt is editor at large of politics.co.uk. Hello, Ian. Hello. Earlier this year, the vaccinations minister, Nadim Zahawi, seemed to rule out vaccine passports. But now Boris Johnson says the concept should not be totally alien to us and pub landlords might be allowed to demand them. You see this as the thin end of the wedge, don't you? Yeah, I do. And you know what? It's, I'm, I'm not even necessarily against them on principle. I remember when they first came up, I thought well, I could see how there, there might be a scenario in which might, this might be necessary. I'm not a fan of ID cards, which is sort of shares lots of attributes with this, although it's a much, you know, it's not as severe as what's being proposed here. But then I'm not a big fan of the state being able to tell you that you can't leave your house for the better part of a year. And you accept that in a pandemic because that is what needs to happen to tackle the pandemic. I think if you could show that that was a requirement, that these vaccine certificates were a requirement of that, then you would have a different conversation. But the truth is you cannot show that. There's no evidence for it at all. I mean, at the moment, we still don't have the data that would suggest that simply by virtue of having had a vaccine, someone would not be infecting somebody else. There's some early good signs about it, but we do not know that yet. We also don't know how long immunity lasts for. So most of the sort of health experts that look at this think, well, actually, what you're doing is creating a false sense of security. What we do know is the people that are vaccine hesitant very often speak of this idea that it being a way for the state to control them. So in that context, we know the best thing to do is to try to convince people to address concerns, some of which are reasonable, some of which are not, but many of which really are reasonable, rather than use this kind of bludgeoning hammer to get them to conform to what we want. So once again, like you just look at the situation, you think, okay, so somehow, look, you know what you need to fucking do. What we need to do is test, trace, isolate. We've known that from the start. It remains the case now. That is the best way of dealing with outbreaks. And that means putting in money to have the people on the ground who can do it and to help actually give money to those who need to isolate so that they don't go into work because they can't afford to stay home. But instead of doing the thing that we know works, we've taken something that does not work and would have pernicious outcomes and decided to, it looks like, decided to approach that instead. They're chucking about £450,000 at this at the moment. They're starting to slowly, gradually admit that it seems to be the area they're going for. It might figure in the Queen's speech coming up soon. And honestly, in a way, you just sort of think, well, it's completely, it's an expensive, counterproductive way to behave that would increase inequality. So I'm almost surprised it hasn't taken the government longer to decide that they're going to do it. Alex Andreu is also with us, as you can hear from that laugh. Hi, Alex. Hello, Roz. The Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities has finally reported. It says that while there's overt racism in the UK, it's not an institutionally racist country. What did you think of that take? I think it's 
interesting to ask when and why this report was commissioned, by whom, how, and who's the intended audience. So this was commissioned in the aftermath of the Black Lives Matter protests, which the government hated. Munira Mirza was the commissioner, as it were, who had been writing for years on illustrious publications that just spiked <laughs> that institutional racism is not a thing. It was commissioned from a body headed by Tony Sewell, appointed by Johnson, who worked with him when he was mayor, and produced a similar report which concluded institutional racism was not a thing. So, you know, it has produced exactly what it was commissioned to produce. But the interesting question of all of those is who's the intended audience? And I think the intended audience of the report is white people. And that is why it is incongruous with the life experience of people of color in this country, because it's not intended for them. It is intended to soothe white people into thinking that, oh, we're the best. We're terrific. We're not racist at all. It's all brilliant. There's nothing I need to do to change the situation. And there's a reason for that. The reason Black Lives Matter protests scared the bejeebus out of this government last summer was because of the amount of young white people who participated. That was the thing that scared the life out of them. The report makes 24 recommendations, and those range from getting rid of unconscious bias training to better careers advice for all disadvantaged kids, not just ethnic minorities. What recommendations would you have liked to see? Look, uh, if your starting point is a political one, which is that institutional racism doesn't exist in this country. Your recommendations are about getting rid of things which are, you know, put in place to counteract institutional racism. Uh, it, the timing of this sucks. Minorities have died disproportionately during the pandemic for two reasons. A, because they're much more on the front line of the NHS, and B, because they have underlying health, which is worse because of socioeconomic reasons, which are heavily racialized. So to come and say, oh, there's no problem here, when you look at the NHS and it has a, a workforce that is nearly 40% BAME, but only seven chief execs out of 279 who are BAME. And to say, oh, there's nothing institutional about that. It just happened because white people are better. I mean, I don't understand how it can deny people's lived experiences and what they're hoping to achieve by doing that. You know, of course, some of the stuff it says is reasonable. Of course, different groups have different life experiences, and you can't group them all together. But they also have shared experiences, which do relate to how this country treats people of color. And you can't deny those shared experiences either. It, you know, it says white privilege as a term is unhelpful. Institutional Racism as a term is unhelpful. Teaching Britain's true imperial past, it's unhelpful. Unhelpful to whom? Sorry. This, <laughs> this week on the show, the Mirror has confirmed that Boris Johnson did have an affair with Jennifer O'Keary. It's provided lots of details, some of which was pretty distressing, quite frankly, and yet hardly anyone is talking about it. We ask why, and all sexual mores aside, why are we ignoring the £126,000 worth of Londoners' money and work jollies that were handed to O'Keary during the affair? Plus, a school in Bradford is facing protests after a teacher showed a depiction of the Prophet Muhammad in class. Should teachers be expected to moderate what they teach to take account of what parents want, and should they be suspended if they don't? And we'll also be discussing the Museum of Brexit, which just happens to be backed by prominent Brexiteers, but will, they have assured the Charity Commission, be neutral. So who's going to curate the half of the museum that will tell the Remain side of the story? Remember, you can back Oh God, What Now? on Patreon, starting at just £2 a month. You'll get the episode early, a shout-out at the end of the show, access to the full extra bit, and a chance to have your questions read on But Your Emails. (laughs) 
We were all aghast to learn this weekend that Boris Johnson engaged in a long-term affair with tech entrepreneur Jennifer Arcuri while he was <laughs> London mayor, losing socks in her flat and reading Macbeth to each other in a foreplay routine. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Arcuri explained to the Mirror that the Greater London Authority paid for her to accompany him on a trade trip to Israel, but he became frustrated when they were put up in different hotels. The GLA is to look into whether she got preferential treatment after receiving £126,000 worth of public money to organise events and going on three overseas trade missions. Ian, it's fair to say the reaction to these revelations has been underwhelming. Why is that? I mean, there's a lot going on here, but partly it comes down to the concept of, of hypocrisy in politics and a way in which I think Boris Johnson has sort of neutralised that attack. We need to be careful to sort of delineate the two things, right? Because on the one hand, you have the affair, a sort of salacious information. And on, on the other hand, you have the money, which is the political story to me. I mean, the affair part, which, by the way, you know, has been reported and talked about online with lots of people sort of constantly mentioning the details of it. And I don't, you know, they have, they, they have put imagery in my mind, which I <laughs> Any point, and it keeps on fucking happening every day. It keeps on popping up, and he's like, "I beg, I beg you, I beg you to stop. I cannot handle it anymore." <laughs> Internal scream that they have injected into my brain. But there's that on the one hand, and the truth is, I don't give a fuck. I don't, I don't give a fuck who has affairs in politics or anywhere else. It's, I really don't care less. There's this sort of dangerous thing. I think we were talking about this on, on sort of start the week on the bunker. There's a sort of dangerous thing that I think is taking over the left which used to be quite vigilant about this stuff and used to say, no, come on, you can't, you know, th these are separate issues. What someone gets on in their personal life is different to what they do in their politics. But I think because Johnson sort of encapsulates, because the manner in which he conducts his romantic life and the manner in which he conducted his professional life, for instance, as a journalist making things up and the manner in which he governs, again, just constantly making shit up, it just seems so in line that it's very tempting to say that this stuff speaks to his professional life as well. Now, I just think, I think that's a really dangerous place to go to. And it was like, you know, if you just think for a second, that can be used against people. You will, I mean, you know, Martin Luther King had extramarital affairs. Okay. That does not in any way take away from the legacy. You cut, once you go down this road, that is a gun point that everyone's had. It's simply not true that because someone might not be that great towards their wife, that they can't be that great as a political leader or in their ideas. I mean, that is just not the case. So then we could just sort of put all that to one side. The thing is the money, the money is the core aspect of this. And there is at the moment, there's still the ongoing uh, Greater London Assembly's oversight committee report inquiry into it, which is taking a terribly long time. And doesn't seem like it's going to report back until the summer. What concerns me, though, is that the reaction to that will be a shrug of the shoulders in the way that it has been this week. And that is more concerning. And that does seem to come down to this sort of ramshackle, bumbling way that Boris Johnson has of internalizing in the audience a sense that it's an act. And that therefore, because there's a wink, wink and a nudge, nudge to it, it can't be called hypocritical. Now, that's fucking dangerous because hypocrisy is the thing that gets you as a politician. That's why the Cummings story had such value. I mean, that's why Sleaze during John Major's time had such an effect. That's why the Lib Dems were taken out on tuition fees, because of the perception of hypocrisy. And if he has truly managed to neutralize that, and by the, the look of things of what we're seeing right now, it feels like he has, that is a very, very, very strong protective shield he has developed. But it's the cronyism too, isn't it? That's an aspect of this story. He has a reputation for throwing money at vanity projects like the Garden mm -hmm. Bridge and the incredibly expensive new Route Masters. And during the pandemic, we've seen millions funneled to friends and contacts of the cabinet. Why does this cronyism fail to cut through? You know, I suspect that some of it is, I mean, look, first of all, we also have to admit the fact that, you know, there is a, a pretty loyalist press around him. And, you know, the BBC a lot of the time takes the sort of coverage that it does on the basis of what the papers are following, and they mostly are not following this through. Not in every case, and some papers at certain times go for the attack, but mostly they're not following this stuff through. I also think, though, that there's a bit of a problem with um, the complexity of a lot of this stuff. That, so, for in, like, to go back to that Tory sleaze period, right, like a brown paper envelope stuffed with money, everyone gets that. You know, we think about the Neil Hamilton stuff. Um, you, you get that. You can visualize it. You know what it means. It's, it's clear to people. When you talk about sort of, the, the, you know, the arrangements around procurement contracts, that's a much more, it's a much harder sell for an audience. It's not so instantly visualizable. And I, I think we, we've really struggled to just sort of 
permeate that stuff and to put it in these kind of vivid primary colours that would actually latch on to, the, to people's attention. We often ask ourselves on this podcast, and listeners ask us as well, what he'd have to do to inspire such public disgust that he'd be forced to resign. Is that the wrong question? Well, I don't think the resign. I don't. The resign isn't. I don't think is that pertinent. I think the, the core thing is, you know, what would damage him? That's the real thing. Damage him with his supporters. What would take him out? I mean, and you, you know, again, it's the Cummings thing. You know, what what would be his Barnard Castle? But with all of this stuff, in pretty much every case. It's always hypocrisy, you know, and that's what brings me back to that point that makes me nervous, that the the sense of having neutralized it makes things much more difficult. I mean, we can, you know, every day we sit here and for everything he says, you can come up with a statement he made, you know, where he said the exact opposite. I mean, not least on, you know, the EU is one of them, but even with, you know, the vaccine passports, I mean, there's quotes of him saying the opposite just a sort of a month ago, you know, when it was ID cards, he said he'd rather eat it than present it to a policeman. And now here we are with a project that would be more pernicious, more deep seated than ID cards. So it's quite hard there. You can only hope that there is just a moment that isn't really policy orientated, that is behavior orientated, that is just so striking and so obviously hypocritical. So obviously going against the things that he himself, said that himself had said that people remembered that it could do damage. Alex, is the world just less prudish? than it used to be about sleaze? Or is this just about Johnson and his Teflon-like qualities? Mm. Look, I don't think it's about being prudish at all. And and on this, I I have to dissent slightly from Ian because, you know, just because something involves sex does not automatically make talking about it tawdry. There can be legitimate reasons to talk about it if it fits within a pattern of behaviour. I mean, I'm not a a Puritan, I've had my share of cock, but, the, you know, the, the, the fact that Johnson, the fact that Johnson has a proven serial pattern of behavior of betraying pretty much anyone that is pulled within his orbit is relevant. And it fits into that pattern of behavior. This man is a narcissist. He's a liar. He's a cheat, and he's currently in charge of our country. This should give anyone pause for thought. So it's not about the affair, but also it doesn't have to be necessarily about the money. It's about a person who is untrustworthy to everyone that's been in a position of trust with him ever, it seems to me. In the last two years, we've had the Supreme Court's ruling on prorogation, the government being found in contempt of Parliament and countless breaches of the ministerial code. And there were no consequences for Mm. any of that. How can we expect to find solutions through formal legal means if those institutions don't mean anything to those in power and could just be ignored? Yeah, I mean, the answer is in the question. We have to change the legal means. We have to reform the institution. And this goes back to something that we've discussed often on this podcast. Our system relies heavily on convention, which means there is a built-in assumption that the, the totality of people who hold public office, on the whole, will not behave like shits, that they will be decent. The assumption no longer holds, so we need urgent constitutional reform. The government cannot be in a position to ignore, for instance, um, the finding that someone holding one of the four great offices of state is bullying her staff. What happens? The member of staff she bullied goes at great expense to you and me, and the person who reported she was a bully goes, she stays. I mean, this is profound dysfunction. Historically, it's been the case that public outrage, which in reality usually means pressure from the press, has led to resignations. But as Ian was saying, much of the press appears to have a blind spot when it comes to Johnson and his government. Do you think we should expect normal service to resume when he does leave office? Or has the Overton window shifted permanently now? I mean, my feeling is that the right-wing press, if he leaves and it's another Tory prime minister, yes, the same thing will continue. If he leaves and there's a Labour prime minister, I suspect everyone will become a lot more interested in propriety in public office. The, The point is that at some point, this lot... And I'm not talking about Johnson's government only. I'm talking about 
you know, the governments for the last 10 years, at least, if not before that, they worked out that you can actually ride it out, that you you can behave as indecently as you want, provided you can move on the news agenda. Often by someone else behaving indecently, it doesn't really matter. If real news doesn't move the vans on, you can invent something that does about statues or asylum seekers or wokeness or cancel culture. It doesn't matter. The result is that the required pressure to force a resignation never builds. Nina, Johnson was criticised for claiming workers have had more than a few days off as a result of working from home which will be hilarious for anyone with children, except him, obviously. <laughs> Why does he keep getting away with it? Should, should we blame Labour for not opposing harder and somehow getting the blame to stick to him? Look, I think in many ways, Boris Johnson's political life imitates his own real personal life. He keeps, quote, getting away with it. And how? You know, he's like the cat with a thousand and nine lives. But I think there are several things going on here that are working in his favor that I definitely would not have foreseen a year ago. The first is obviously the enormity of the pandemic and the reality of what it's been like to live through the last 12 months, which has kind of made Brexit a forgotten footnote in in the British public's imagination, right? The second is, again, related to the pandemic, and it is the UK's astonishingly successful vaccination drive, um, especially when compared or considered in light of the kind of disastrous events um, with regards to vaccination on the European continent, which have kind of been this point of national pride and validation and have certainly led people to forget or not mull about or not even kind of question how badly the government mishandled the pandemic when it first emerged. And the third Um, even though, you know, this is down to the Treasury rather than Johnson and number 10, is the exceedingly generous furlough scheme, which means that people actually don't feel worse off. I think they feel better off in some cases, and they feel better off where it really counts, in the purse. Again, even though we're in the midst of this global pandemic. And I was just looking at some numbers the other day, and the British public has saved over £140 billion over the course of the last 12 months. So if the vaccination drive is effective and lockdowns don't become a consistent feature of life due to new variants of COVID emerging, um, I think it's going to feel like the economy is roaring back, although, of course, it's going to be lower than what it would have been had it not been for Brexit and the pandemic. But this feeling of the good times are here again are, I think, going to reward the Tories at the polls. So uh, Boris Johnson does seem to have astonishingly good luck in terms of sticking power. Yeah, you only have to look at the uh, housing market to see that um, there are plenty of people who are not feeling worse off at all right now. Earlier in the pandemic, some of us imagined that serious times would call for a serious leader. Um, This has proved to be massively wrong. I mean, Johnson's (laughs) personal approval ratings have now overtaken Keir Starmer's. Is it all, as you're saying, the the vaccine effect and appliant press and furlough? Or should we be interrogating ourselves, by which I mean, you know, people on the left and centre left, a bit more to explain why this duplicitous, incompetent chancer is doing so well? Is it partly up to us to? Maybe serious times call for a court jester, right? (laughs) It seems to be what the national sentiment is. (laughs) Yeah. I think in large part, I see a parallel with um, what Boris Johnson has done and what Angela Merkel did with such devastatingly effective political acumen over the course of her 15-year tenure as a Chancellor of Germany. And what she did was she took the central policies of the center-left SPD and made them her own. And by doing that, she basically suffocated the SPD, which now have basically become a spent force in German politics, certainly as of late. Hmm. Johnson's government... Not only did they extinguish the recent most pressing concern in voters' minds, immigration, right, pre-pandemic, due to Brexit and the ending of freedom of movement, but since then, over the last 12 months, they've taken over as the most prolific, big spending government in the history of government spending. Given that Tory kind of fiscal prudence doesn't exist anymore, and this combined with the the changing demographics of voter allegiance, 
with labor being more associated to the kind of metropolitan cities and the Tories getting a stronghold in what would have been the traditional kind of labor heartlines, you have to ask yourself, what does labor have to set itself apart? And again, this is in part relating to what Ian was talking about when it comes to Johnson's hypocrisy, because he is the ultimate populist Boris Johnson. I mean, the story of his career is just how consistently he has always put his populism ahead of his principles, right? How else would the former kind of liberal internationalist mayor of London become the face of a Brexit campaign to kind of take back control of our borders? Uh, How many U-turns have his government already made? Think about what Ian just said about ID cards. What was it that he said he would rather eat them (laughs) (laughs) and now he wants to have the vaccine passport because he knows it's popular. So given that he's kind of taken almost the center-left grounds, especially on government spending. And a lot of the kind of cultural issues would seem to become this increasingly important or occupy this important space in the political and cultural discourse of this country. Again, I just don't see where Starmer can set himself apart. Protests have been held in Bradford this week after a teacher showed a cartoon of the Prophet Muhammad in a class. The teacher has reportedly apologised and the school, which has launched an investigation, says the image was totally inappropriate. But students at the school have started a petition in defence of the teacher and it has now reached more than 66,000 signatures. And the community secretary, Robert Jenrick, said he was deeply unsettled by the protests. Ian, the school apologised for the fact that pupils have been shown this totally inappropriate cartoon. Were they right to do that ahead of the outcome of the inquiry that they're going to have? (laughs) I'm I'm trying to think of a scenario in which it does make sense to apologise before the inquiry has found out what you may or may not have to apologise for. Um, So no, they're obviously not. And in fact, I'm, I'm kind of startled and mortified by the degree of cowardice that I'm seeing over this issue. And that's a cowardice, first of all, on the basic principles of freedom of speech. And these are basic principles. And I think we get really sort of nervous, very anxious on this issue, particularly around sort of depictions of the Prophet Muhammad, that we suddenly just start to cave in and just think, well, actually, no, in this case, you know, we we need to make sure people aren't too offended. You think, no, absolutely not. That is not the way that we operate. That is not the way that a free society operates. And people should tow a bit more spine. But it also has this kind of poisonous effect in the kind of categories that people are lumped into. And you look at the coverage over the last week, the manner in which the Muslim community in this country is discussed is just startlingly, startlingly ignorant and actually quite poisonous. And I think that's because there is a sort of incentive on the right and a weakness on the left towards homogenizing this group. So on the right, it comes from this sort of Islamophobic idea of, well, you know, sort of Islam is very authoritarian, it's a threat against the West, it doesn't believe in any kind of freedom of speech or liberalism. On the left, it comes from this thing of whenever you see a group that faces oppression, as Muslims in this country absolutely do, they tend to just think, right, well, whatever it is that the leaders of that group are saying, then we're, we're behind that. They never question who exactly, who the fuck are these leaders? Who are they to speak for the entirety of this community, to make it look like the entirety of the Muslim community in Britain is unable to accept freedom of speech, even on things that they themselves might find offensive? And the Muslims that I know would not draw a picture of the Prophet Muhammad, but they also do not think that people should be forced into hiding, into hiding because of the threats and bullying and aggression of reactionary, invariably reactionary men typically from the local mosque or local business leaders, out on the street? Why is it that no one ever asks questions of those kinds of Muslims when it comes to these issues? I never see anyone talk about talk to Ismaili uh, Muslims, who, and I don't know the views of many Ismailis on this topic in particular, but is a much more liberal part of Islam. I never see them come up in these discussions. It's as if they don't exist. I never hear anyone going to this inclusive mosque in London asking their opinions on it because it just doesn't fit the narrative. So you just get this picture of this just complete capitulation of basic liberal principles in terms of our, our discussion of this, of this matter and this homogenized view of what Islam is, where we allow the most reactionary, the most right wing, the most authoritarian elements to act like they have a leadership role to which they are not entitled and to which we should not speak about them as if they possessed it. 
Well, the former Tory party chair, Saida Warsi, said that the incident had been hijacked by extremists on both sides, which does speak a little to what you've been saying. But is that a sensible reaction or is she sitting on the fence, essentially? I don't. So I can't really answer the question, honestly, because I mean, on the one hand, of course, I, I completely accept that on the Muslim side that these are extremists. They're not necessarily representative of anything. They are not deserve to be talked about as if they represent the Muslim uh, community. On the other hand, I mean, if you're talking about um, sort of Islamophobic conservative right wingers, then yes, they love this stuff. You know, the nativists love this stuff because it's all the clash of civilizations. And, you know, and it ultimately drills down into an argument of, oh, we just can't live together. It's a sort of anti-multicultural argument, which has always weaponized Islam as a particular way of making that anti-multicultural point. If it's about sort of free speech liberals, then obviously I'm going to take umbrage of that because I am a liberal extremist. That is what I am. I believe in liberal principles and I'm hopefully I would like to think that I'm prepared to see them through to their logical conclusion, even when it's difficult and even when it's awkward. So I don't, I, you know, I, it would depend on who she was referencing. If she's referencing somebody else, then fine. If she's referencing me, then I'm afraid I just can't stand it. <laughs> Alex, can non-Muslims really appreciate the degree of offence an image like this might cause? And if if we can't, can, do we have the right to complain about the protests? Um, we have, obviously, we have a right to have a view about it. I mean... All sorts of groups have all sorts of agendas in this. I, I cannot claim as a non-religious person to understand the offence this causes to someone religious. But what I do know is that I can sort of play the scenario through and I find problems down the line unless we adopt a more diplomatic uh, way of talking about this. Because let us say that we come up with a state-sanctioned solution which says, absolutely, so schools are allowed to do that, no one can complain. But at the same time, we allow faith schools. So won't that simply push loads of kids into the enclaves of faith schools because their religious parents will feel they can trust them more? Do we want that? If not, what do we propose? Closing faith schools. Is that more liberal? Yes. You know, it, it, the answer it, is yes. It's much more liberal. Faith school should obviously not exist. No, no. The, yes, the, I agree. The answer. The, the answer. Oh, I do as well, actually. But yeah. <laughs> good. <laughs> good. We, we have a, a quorum, but the answer is not uh, freedom of speech. Does not consist of everyone being allowed to talk about the things you approve of. It's about everyone being allowed to talk and teach the things they want. And religious schools come into that conversation. Now, like I said, I think we all understand the importance of manners on a personal level. We're really adept at negotiating situations to diffuse them, of being diplomatic, of understanding that the moment you you say fuck you to someone, they listen to nothing else you say after that. But at tribal level... I think we've lost that skill on all sides. There is a way of discussing this stuff that is mediational, that has a chance of finding a practical solution. And there are ways which are confrontational, which might make me feel like Johnny Big Balls for five minutes, but have zero chance of actually finding a practical solution and will predictably make things worse. So if we want to be that guy, let's be that guy. But I say, let's not be that guy. Where does that go, though? What, I mean, what, when you say practical solution, I mean, th there is the practical solution, which is simply that teachers should not be threatened about the manner in which they conduct their lessons or the material that they use in it by protest mobs outside of schools. I mean, that, that, the practical solution is simply the status quo. We, we already have that. But Ian, the protest outside the school is also an expression of free speech. Of course, no one's saying they can't protest, but everyone's saying that you don't get to force a speech reflecting. No, but you are. <laughs> That's exactly what you are saying. You're saying that the thing someone says because I agree with it is fine, but the thing someone else says because I don't agree with it is not. No one's saying that they, I mean, you can't protest. Of course, you have the right to go out and protest. I don't think anyone has talked about stopping them from protesting. If you have a situation where a teacher is forced into hiding, where a school says, we apologize and this shouldn't have happened without even looking into what did happen, where you have no defense for the person that is actually afraid for their life, now that is not the same thing as the right to hold a protest. These are obviously 
My darling, you're preaching to the choir. I agree with you on all the fundamentals. All I'm saying is that mixed into this, there is an element of superiority of people who are not religious, believing that their uh, belief system is somehow more elevated. And they're in a position to dictate to religious people what they should and shouldn't say, what they should and shouldn't believe. That is threaded throughout the liberalism movement, actually, which is why it's secular. I don't, I don't have a, an issue with the philosophical basis of it, but let's not deny it's there. So my slight problem with that is that it acts as if all religious people feel the same way. But in actual fact, many religious people, whether they're Christians, and also, again, Muslims, who liberal Muslims are never mentioned in these conversations. I can only make this point so many times. It's something that, that shocks me all, all the time. No, 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 I agree, I agree. Um, do you have views on this? And they are not the views of those people outside of the school. So it doesn't seem to me a specifically secular thing. And of course, when we talk about the liberal principles of freedom of speech and of freedom of belief, those came predominantly from you know, Puritan Protestants. Those came from religious sure. people who thought we are being persecuted by other religions. <laughs> you know, the best thing we can do is create this space where no one gets to you know, persecute anyone. No one gets to silence anyone because that is how everyone of a religious faith retains their freedom to explore and, and, to, and to worship. Nina, uh, what's your take on, on this? Well, I think I'm going to agree very heavily with Ian. I think a debate around sensitivity to people's feelings in the context of freedom of speech shouldn't even really be a live debate. I mean, even if that means offending someone's religious sensitivities. And I think the fact that people might feel afraid to say that is even more evidence of why it should be said. Like Ian, I believe the freedom of speech, the principle itself should be sacrosanct. And regardless how inane, offensive or outrageous someone's beliefs, they should have the right to express them. And I believe that this is a hill worth dying on. If you believe, as I do, that a secular society in which every human enjoys fundamental human rights that are not only universal, inalienable and indivisible is a society worth fighting for. I mean, it's like it says in the UN's kind of universal declaration of human rights charter, the advent of a world in which human beings shall enjoy the freedom of speech and belief has been proclaimed as the highest aspiration for the common people. And we've actually built a society where we have that enshrined, this highest of aspirations into law. And I don't think it can be taken for granted what I find very unfortunate is that, and astonishing really, is how the principle or the, the idea of freedom of speech, one of the highest aspirations of liberal democracy has somehow become the domain of right-wing conservatives. I mean, how did that happen? In the context of the Muhammad cartoon specifically, let me remind you that the Quran does not explicitly forbid making such images, even though several Islamic legal and theological texts do. But again, that's not relevant to the law of the land in the UK. We do not have blasphemy laws in the UK. As a matter of fact, they were abolished. So while you can have a legitimate debate about the morality of this alleged blasphemy, even though, by the way, I don't believe this teacher was acting in bad faith. I think he was doing exactly what he was hired to do, which was teach. And he did put out, you know, caveats about the content that he was going to uh, show to his students in the religious education class. But I think it would be an absolutely terrible precedent to undermine, again, the fundamental principle of freedom of speech due to these protesters, who, by the way, are now making threats on this man's life. And that's something we have to take very seriously, given that it was only last year that a, another teacher was publicly beheaded in France for doing something similar. So I think Ian and I are absolutely on the same, going to be singing from the same hymn sheet on this one. Just to clarify, I'm not here to defend fatwas. Okay? <laughs> no? That's not what I'm talking about at all. It, it, obviously, I agree with you on a philosophical level. I'm just saying that there is a way of opening up the space for more voices to be heard, and there's a way of shouting at each other, which means no one gets heard. 
And I feel that we're trapped in that latter space. It's, you know, I'm not talking about the merits of this particular case. For heaven's sake, obviously, I'm not talking about, you know, people beheading people. All I'm saying is that there's a way of taking the temperature down from these debates and there's a way of increasing it. It's just a let's think about the manner of achieving something. I don't disagree on the desirable outcome. Nina, I wanted to ask you about France because it is it has been struggling with this uh, terrible incident last year in which a teacher was beheaded for showing an image to his students of the Prophet Muhammad. And now France is drawing up a law aimed at tackling religious extremism, which has got, it has been criticised from both the left and the right as being both too soft on radicalism and for pandering to the far right. Has France grappling with these issues better than we are? Is Are they more out in the open? Is it is it better to discuss discuss this more openly and try and get things on the law books or is the british approach of holding inquiries into difficult issues working i don't think i can judge whether the kind of french approach or the british approach of the inquiries one is more effective than the other however clearly i think that they do serve some purpose in the sense that i mean as just evinced by our very kind of passionate statements and debate just right now, this is a very important discussion to be had publicly. You know, what are the limits of free speech, if indeed there are any? I certainly don't draw the line at quote unquote blasphemy. So there is an important question to ask about how does secular society respond when a group of people affiliated to a religion claims a special privilege that is in direct contradiction to that society's values. And by the way, I do think it's important and relevant to have a discussion about those basic liberal principles and talk about what we do when certain religious beliefs or cultural practices are in direct violation of them. So take, for example, I mean, thankfully, this doesn't happen in the UK. It still does happen in India, but the Hindu practice of sooty, uh, even though it was outlawed by by the Brits back in the 19th century. This is the, the practice whereby a widow burns alive on the funeral pyre of her husband because her life is obviously worthless without her husband alive. Or female genital mutilation. Or the practice of car- uh, marrying, you know, 12-year-old girls to 40-year-old men. I, I like Ian, am a radical liberal, so I can't see a place in our democratic society for these kind of beliefs and practices. Um, but I also do agree with Ian that, unfortunately, this kind of polarized depiction of certain groups as if they are so monolithically reactionary and extreme, as in the case of the Muhammad cartoons protesters, is unhelpful and not true. I think the majority of mixed-race, multicultural people, like myself, by the way, understand the kind of liberal values in a country like the UK. And actually, we think, you know, we not only understand, but we embrace them because many, many, many people who come from kind of different parts of the world have a very different experience of um human rights or liberal values in society. So uh, I think that this kind of polarization uh, is really unhelpful, but I think the discussion is certainly one that needs to be had. Now, how about a day out at the Brexit Museum? You may have read that Leave campaigners are looking to raise a million pounds to fund a museum of Brexit in a Leave area such as Dudley in the West Midlands. The organisers achieved charitable status for the project by promising that it will be neutral. But that might be a tall order for backers such as the former Labour Brexiteer Kate Hoey, several former Vote Leave bigwigs and a former comms officer for UKIP. According to the website, it's a tremendous story that needs to be told. And a Q&A on the site says both sides of the Brexit debate need to be presented fairly and in a balanced way. But as yet, we on Oh God, What Now, formerly Romaniacs, have not been contacted. 
Nina, the organisers say they need to act now while all the campaigning paraphernalia is still in people's attics. And I'm sure there are people listening who have a, the old banner from March <laughs> sitting somewhere um, gathering dust. But isn't it too early to form conclusions about something that really only properly happened in January? I just, so I hadn't even heard about this project. Um <laughs> what you know are they going to be putting that poster of the new borders of the uk will be with syria and iraq kind of vote leave facebook ad which was particularly offensive remember syria and iraq were in bright red colors um what i still understand this is actually happening i don't i don't really have a response uh it's way too early to form conclusions about something that only happened in january which will continue to by the way unfold for many many years to come this was only part one of the whole brexit saga the appetizer Well, yes, I mean, I can't see how they're going to bring in all those those um, duplicitous ads that <laughs> ran online. But anyway, we'll see how that's done. Ian, what relics of the Remain campaign would you put in this museum? I mean, that is not an easy question to answer. I swear, you would probably go with Lady Hale's brooch. That was my personal favourite. Oh, I like it. Yeah, well, it was very nice. I have a T-shirt with the thing of that. Yeah, so the, spy, the glistening spider brooch. I mean that you'd have to go with that, wouldn't you? I mean that that to me was like a, it was obviously like a very good moment. It was it was an important moment, right? Because I mean, what, I mean, I don't want to get worked up about this because I feel that by doing so, I'm sort of tacitly validating their <laughs> bullshit idea of a museum in the first place. But it was an important, you know, it was obviously like a very dramatic moment. But it was a moment of of the sort of the the liberal separation of powers of the court standing up for Parliament against the executive. I mean, if you were going to do a play, you know, about the concept of the liberal separation of powers, you would have a scene in it where, you know, where Lady, Lady Hale stood there with her brooch and, and did what she, you know, that it was a pretty perfect moment. So on that basis, yeah, I'm going to have her Spider-Woman brooch. Yeah, so we got Lady Hale's brooch. Alex, what would you put in there? Um, can I put myself in there? <laughs> I, I am no, a relic no, of the remain campaign. Let me argue my case. I am a relic of the remain campaign. Um, in the style of Guy de Maupassant, who hated the Eiffel Tower so much, he had lunch there every day because it was the only place from which he couldn't see it. Okay, well, well, yeah. Nina, what, um, what do you put in there? You know what I think would be a really good documentary piece of evidence as to like the, the bad luck that was ahead for the Britain Stronger in Europe campaign would be the video, the launch, um, when they kind of got the CEO of Marks and Spencer to be like the the leading kind of voice of British business for the Britain in Europe campaign. And um, he couldn't even get the name of the campaign right at the launch event. <laughs> The bus, we have to put the bus in there, right? Actually, oh, let's put the museum in the bus. Shall we, shall we put the museum in the bus? This way it can be a mobile museum. It can go around the country and delight crowds everywhere. Yes, that is, that is a good idea. I, I think I put in my um, Girl Guides Europe badge, which I'm, I'm still keeping um, optimistically from sometime in the 1980s. Anyway, Alex, there's nothing wrong with a political museum per se, obviously. Um, have you been to any? I went to the the new House of European History recently in Brussels. I mean, it it was quite interesting because it's basically been commissioned and then left completely to the curators with no political interference. As, As a result, the EU is sort of barely exists in it because actually in the history of Europe, it is just a blip. Um, so for something that's funded by the EU, I was really quite tickled that there was no evidence of the EU until you got up to the fifth floor where they had the original steel and coal treaties, um, etc. Um, but I, I thought that was quite interesting, trying to cover a sort of very broad range. I mean, it begins with Zeus tackling the Europa um, cow, as it were. So it starts from ancient Greek mythology. There's a lot to cover. And, you know, five floors later, it gets to Brexit. There's a little vote leave t-shirt hanging there. I thought Europa was a goddess. Is is it a cow as well? Well, she turned into a cow 
to avoid oh. Zeus's amorous advances. Oh, tried to rape her, yes, but yes. But it turned out that that only inflamed his passions. <laughs> Classic Zeus. <laughs> there are also plans, of course, separate plans for a communism museum, which we talked about a few weeks ago on the podcast. Is this all part of the same impulse? Yeah, is that going to be neutral as well? <laughs> <laughs> I wonder. Um, I mean, it's you know what I was saying about why the Black Lives Matters protests scared the government? I think it goes back to that. I think the conservatives and the right wing in general, by chronically undervaluing culture, really scoffing at it, it has put itself into a position of being outside the cultural space altogether. And now it's finding out that actually the cultural space is, is quite important. So I think all these things are a feeble attempt to insert themselves into the conversation by means of crude propaganda. You know, there, there's a bit in Pride and Prejudice where Lady Catherine de Berg shouts from a her armchair in the corner. What are you young people talking about? I must have my share of the conversation. And this is what that, that feels like, you know, like the Conservatives suddenly think, shit, we have no foothold in any cultural space whatsoever. We better create a couple of museums. Meanwhile, the first acts and attractions at Theresa May's £120 million Brexit Festival, a.k.a. Festival UK 2022, have been announced. And they are actually not very Brexity. There's a video platform for unheard voices, sections on music, future food, technology, sustainable festivals, uh, the coastline, obviously. Nina, is this an attempt to rec recreate London 2012? Because the same man is in charge, Martin Green. First of all, what? Again, where have I been hiding? I haven't heard of all these fascinating cultural events and uh, cultural institutions that are being built right in front of my um, eyes. Okay, um, I think it will be exactly opposite to London 2012, and I'll tell you why. When it was a lead up to London 2012, I believed all of the kind of downplaying by my British friends. They're like, it's gonna be shit. The tubes are going to be overcrowded and terrible. And like London's going to be the worst city in the world. You should just leave. And I trusted them. And I left and I went and did three months in Berlin. I just got a nice internship um, at a magazine there. And I was like, well, thank God, because, you know, I've missed 2012. Very soon afterwards, I realized I missed the best thing ever. It was a great success. Everyone <laughs> loved it. It was like phenomenal and I think you know despite the downplaying it turned out to be amazing this might be being billed as being amazing but in the end it might just turn out to be a bit shit. Ian it does sound a bit Festival of Britain or Millennium Dome potentially quite boring actually <laughs> what would you like to see when we in the Festival of Britain I mean what do we ignore when we think about Britain's history I know you've written a lot about the Civil War for example. Yeah yeah there's good you know I mean I would obviously love to see a show that spent ages talking about the levelers and the ranters and the diggers, but I just, of which, of course, the levelers are the superior group of all those radicals yes. from the 1600s. Um, of course, yeah, everybody knows that. Um, so, you know, that would be great, but I, I don't know if I'd see it. It'd be good to see something about the Peasants' Revolt from the sort of 1380s. <laughs> no one ever fucking talks about that. You could do, when we, when we had the podcast with um, Andy Burnham, he referenced the Manchester Mill Workers, uh, during the American Civil War, who sort of helped Lincoln with the blockade, much to their personal detriment, so that essentially, you know, you, you held a blockade against sort of slave-picked cotton. Now, that's a really proud, it's actually a really very wonderful story indeed. We don't hear much about it. I would quite like to have a whole thing about Roy Jenkins's time as Home Secretary in the 60s, you know, liberalisation of the laws on abortion, on divorce, on theatre censorship. Uh, again, people generally tend to think that they don't want to go to museums or festivals that are about the tenure of a Home Secretary in the 1960s. But on that, they are entirely incorrect. And this would be a fantastic festival, the Roy Jenkins Festival. I think that would go down very well indeed. <laughs> Alex, can you pull off nationalist state-mandated art outside of a totalitarian society? Could it ever work? State-mandated, state no, since that implies totalitarianism. Um, but nationalist, yes, I think so. Um, 
I mean, if there, if there is genuine sentiment of national pride around, people will express it in all areas, including art. Um, I, I'm thinking of some of the most moving Spanish music in the folk style um, was a real nationalist movement and was composed in Paris or Argentina by exiles from the Franco regime. And it's it's the same with some Greek music and art from the period of our Ottoman occupation. Um, I, I think actually one of the things art has the capacity to do is reclaim the idea of motherland from the hands of dictators. So yes, absolutely, I think nationalist art can be a balm to authoritarianism. And we've reached the end of the main show. Like last week, we'll be doing But Your Emails as the extra bit for Patreons, so hold tight for that. In the meantime, thanks to Nina. Great to be on. Alex. De nada. And Ian. No, thank you very much. <laughs> now, please be upstanding for our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and the traditional thanks to our latest backers. Hello, and thanks from me to Toby Walcroft, Oliver Bostridge, Max, Alex Cowder, and Claire Rintel. And big thanks from me to Jane Bluzen, Oliver J. England, The Big What If, Kevin Pertaub, and Alexandra Schuchenek. And hello and best wishes from me to Jan Lawrence, Chris A., Mr. Seance, Bethany Thompson, and Andrew Randall. And finally, thanks from me to Tom John Evans, Sally Osborne, Yerko Marovic, Latoya McAllister-Jones, and Jack Green. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Ros Taylor with Ian Dunn, Alexandreu, and Nina Schick. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers, where this week we're doing a question from But Your Emails. Chris Emery says, I read a book called How to Be a Liberal not so long ago. <laughs> this delightful romp got me wondering. Romp, what was- <laughs> romp yeah. I never thought it was a romp. <laughs> Historical romp. What restrictions on immigration can a, quote, good liberal support? To be clear, I'm not asking what you personally support, but what specific restrictive policies are within the bounds of good liberalism. An example might be that a serious criminal record prevents taking citizenship, for example. Ian, I think this really is really a natural for you to kick off with. (laughs) Yes, fair enough. Um, I mean, let me, it's it's a really good question, by the way. And, and, and I think you, you, you do have to frame all of this by saying that I, I do think, and there is disagreement on this, that there, that there is a lot of disagreement on this in liberal circles. But I do think that liberal principles ultimately mean that you're aiming towards a world without borders. Now, that is not going to happen in our lifetime. That is a project that will take, you know, 50, 100 years. In the meantime, what kind of things do you accept? If you look at the economics, right, I mean, a lot of this is case by case. So if you were to look at the economics and find that immigration of a particular type at a particular time was sort of significantly, noticeably reducing wages, especially if they were for the lower paid, then I think you would have a case. Now, we have not found that over and I mean, a lot of studies have been done into this, trying to find it. At most, they find a tiny move, but all of that's very controversial and, of course, is, unend- is upended by the fact that you get sort of, you know, increased productivity and increased jobs by virtue of there being more supply. Um, so it doesn't really hold, but it could hold. There's nothing to prevent that from happening. And in those scenarios, the liber- I think the liberal principle would be, you know, if, if by having this freedom of moving of, of, across a border, there is a significant deterioration in the freedoms of those who are already on the other side of the border because of reduced material opportunities, then you would, you know, you would be under sort of full liberal um, sort of authorization in order to, to impose restrictions. I think that the point on crime was a good one, but I think you could go further. I, I think you could legitimately go much further than that. It's not just citizenship. But, you know, if someone's here on a visa and they're found guilty of having done a violent crime, 
it's legitimate under liberal principles of freedom expansion to remove them um, from the country, which is exactly what we do. That was a little bit of the Executive Luxury Penthouse edition of Oh God, What Now? Sign up to back us on Patreon and you too can get the podcast early, longer and without ads. Search Patreon Oh God, What Now? podcast, sign up and you will get the show early, longer and without ads. Plus our splendid merchandise too. And free access to our live Zooms. Exciting news coming soon. We'll see you next week.